All right, if you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to 1 Peter 3. As I was preparing last week, I had originally intended to go through the end of chapter 3, um, but I realized that there was no way I could finish it all and get us out of here before 2 o'clock. So um, I punted and changed it up a little bit. Um, this morning, as we look at the end of chapter 3, the, the title is to stand firm. And so if you remember, Peter is writing to Christians who have been dispersed. They've been forced to leave their homes, um, some their families, uh, to scatter to other places, to other regions. Um, they have undergone persecution. Some of them are still undergoing persecution And it kind of brings us to this point, this understanding that when the people of God live for Jesus, we're really no different because we are basically exiled as well. Thursday was Reformation Day. And for the first time in a long time, I posted nothing about it. I wound up being too busy to do anything and and just completely forgot. Not even a funny little Martin Luther meme to remember that day, but one of the things that is so inspiring about the Reformation is the reformers themselves. And, and reformers throughout history were really much like these same Christians here, and, and they're really much like we are now to a degree. Um, they were exiled, they were hated, they were tortured, and many of them were killed for their beliefs. And yet they stood firm. And just as we are set apart as they were, we are to hold fast just like they did. Because our security is in Jesus and His Word. It's not in our jobs. It's not in our families. It's not in our hobbies. It's, it's in none of that. Our only security is in Jesus and His Word. And the gospel of Jesus gives us a firm foundation for both life and death. So the gospel doesn't just lead us to salvation. It doesn't just save us, but it prepares us to live a life worthy of the name of Jesus. But it also prepares us for death, for facing death, for impending death. One of the stories that most resonated with me in college in talking about the Reformation was actually a guy who's most often referred to as a pre-reformer. He'd come along before, so we know that Martin Luther, the day that October 31st, 1517, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, that's kind of the beginning of the formal Reformation, but it had started really about 200 years before that. Um, with John Wycliffe um, starting to translate the Bible into the modern language. And then about a hundred years after him come along in Prague a man named John Huss. And when he was a student, he was charged with taking the writings of Wycliffe and handwriting them to get them out. It's before the printing press. And what happened is John Huss, as he was translating the Word of God, had a fire lit within him. 
and he became a powerful preacher of the word, which led to his martyrdom. He was killed for his beliefs in the purity of the word, the preaching of the word, that Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone were the true tenets of Scripture. And he was burned alive. And it's said that as he was dying, he was singing hymns, psalms, singing the Word of God. The main idea of this morning's text is that Christians stand firm in suffering because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. So I want to read verses 13 through 22, and then we will begin to unpack this section. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to this portion of your word, a pretty difficult text, we ask that you would just Remove any of the distractions that we may be facing, that you may speak clearly to us this morning through your word. That we may come face to face with some truths that we never had really thought about. That we would be convicted of certain sins in our lives, that we would be brought face to face with the glorious salvation in Jesus. God, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that our minds would be tuned in to what you will say this morning, and that your spirit would speak. We know that your word does not return void, and so we're trusting that the preaching and the reading of your word this morning will lead to changed lives. For some, it'll bring conviction. 
For some, it'll bring encouragement and hope. Whatever the case may be, we know your word's sufficient for all. So would you glorify yourself through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, Christians stand firm in suffering because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. The first thing that we see in this passage is that we are to stand firm in our suffering. As you stand boldly for Jesus, as you pursue holiness, as you live for Him, you're going to face many obstacles. There are going to be people who hate you. There are going to be people who object you. You may lose family. You may lose friends. You may lose positions. Whatever the case may be, you will face obstacles when you boldly live for Christ. These Christians have been dispersed, and Peter is writing to them to encourage them to have no fear regardless of their situation. He's encouraging them to stand firm during the midst of this time of their suffering. Every one of us goes through difficult times. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and we're going to see how this relates to the Word. Don't be discouraged during the storms of life, because they actually bring great blessing. There are going to be times where you feel crippled by what is happening around you. Look what Peter writes in verse 13 and into verse 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. We have to remember that God is sovereign over all things. And that even in the times of life where nothing makes sense, where we want to question God's plan, we want to question God's ways... God is truly working all things together for good. Listen to this quote from Richard Sibbs. He was a Puritan pastor. He says, Sometimes when God will have a man grow, he will suffer him to fall. Think about that. That there are going to be times in your life where God is wanting you to grow, so he is going to allow you to fall. He says that by his Fall, he may grow in a deeper hatred of sin and in jealousy over his own heart. That he may grow more in love with God for pardoning him. There are going to be days, there are going to be moments, there are going to be seasons in your life where God allows you to fall so that you can become more entrenched with his love for you. To where you hate sin. You hate the effects of sin in your life and the lives of those around you, where you despise the corruption that is surrounding you. And and you grow in the jealousy over your own heart. That is, you want to pursue holiness. You want to be filled with the glory of the Lord, and you want to shine forth the light of that glory. 
And God allows this to happen and sometimes God propels this to happen so that we may fall more in love with the pardoning grace of God. It's hard to be thankful for the saving grace of Christ if we don't realize the depravity and the depth and the horrible nature of our sin. But once we realize who we were and that we had absolutely no hope apart from Christ, we rejoice in the work of Jesus when he saves us. Because the reality is, is we are only Christians. If you're here today and you're a Christian, that is you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you are only that because of God. And so it is a great blessing for the Christian to know God's saving mercies on your soul. To know that you are completely and utterly lost and hopeless without Him. And you know what? The world absolutely hates this. The world hates the message of Jesus. It goes against everything worldly wisdom says. And when you pursue Christ, and you pursue righteousness, and you boldly proclaim the truth of Him, persecution is going to come. And when it comes... as it is to these Christians, as it did to reformers, as it did to Christians throughout the centuries, and as it does to many of us, we're encouraged to be ready. The latter half of verse 14 says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So when fear comes upon you, don't fear. When trouble comes, persecution comes, do not be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. There's a lot going on here. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus for salvation, you have been armed with the Spirit of God, and He has given you the greatest sword, the most powerful sword there is. Use it, the Word. In your heart's Honor Christ the Lord as holy. It starts there. It starts with knowing that Christ is the Lord and that He is holy. It is knowing that He and He alone can and will save. And always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Now, if you're living just like everyone else, you're never going to have to worry about this. So if you want to avoid having to make a defense of the gospel, if you want to avoid persecution, if you want to avoid any of these trials, just keep on living like you're living and keep on living like the world would have you live and you're not going to face any of this. You can say you're a Christian, but if you're continuing to live like the world's standards, you'll never have to worry about this a day in your life. But if you truly confess Jesus and he has truly changed your hearts, You will honor Him. 
and you're going to live a life that is contrary to the world. You know, we have done a really good job of this in modern Christianity, especially in America, where we want our faith to look so appealing to the world that it actually is no different than the world. We want our songs to sound the same. We want our dress to be the same. We want our lives to look the same. We want our churches to be the same as if we went to a concert or to a sporting event or whatever. And nothing is different. We want to be so in tune with the culture so as to draw people in. That's not what draws people in. It says being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If your life has been radically changed by Jesus, your life is just going to be different. And so people are going to see that. They should know that. They might not know the details. They might not know why you're different. They might think you strange. But when things begin to crumble, they're probably going to come and say, how is it that you can be so full of joy during the most crucial and crippling times of your life? And Paul tells them, when that happens, don't be afraid. Honor Christ by being prepared to make a defense. Be ready to tell people the good news of Jesus. Be ready to say, I can do this. I can be joyful through the most horrible times of my life. Because I've been bought with a price. And notice what he says. Not just to make a defense, but to make a defense with gentleness and respect. We're to fight. Both boldly and winsomely. For the truth of him who has saved us. We can boldly declare the truth of God. But we can do so with gentleness and respect. In a winsome way. In other words. Don't be a jerk. Jesus doesn't lead you to be a jerk. Jesus doesn't lead you, the gospel doesn't leave you as a scrooge. It warms your soul. And you want people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't be the curmudgeon. Don't be the bitter church person. Don't be the one who is always complaining. Rejoice in the work of God. Live in the hope of Christ. And when people ask you how you do that or why you do that, give them Jesus. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian and you have trusted Jesus to save you, now you need to trust him to lead you. You don't just trust Him to save you, you trust Him to lead you. We've talked about shepherding during this time, the Middle Eastern way of shepherding. The shepherd, the sheep, he, he cared for his sheep so much that when he called them out of the sheepfold, he began to walk and they followed. 
They knew that they were going to be cared for. They knew that they were going to be led to green pastures. They knew that they were going to be led to quiet waters. They knew that they were going to be led to rest. And they knew that they were going to be protected. Jesus is our good shepherd. So we need to remember this, that as God's people, we're not only changed and saved by God, but we are called to reflect the character of God. So listen to verse 16. So having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we stand firm in suffering as we proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. Paul says, I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. You don't have to be a scholar to give a defense for your faith. Just tell people what God did for you. And do so knowing that the battle has already been won. They might reject you. You might still be hated. You might still face persecution. In extreme cases, you could still lose your life, but that doesn't mean you lose your soul. See, the battle has already been won. Guys, our confidence, our hope is in Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death in his own death. Live a life that reflects the nature and the character of God. What do we mean by that? When Jesus was mocked, when Jesus was despised, when Jesus was beaten, when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was rejected, what did he do? He trusted the Father. And as we see in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Don't fear suffering for good. Our stance as the people of God is to stand firm in our suffering. Now, I want to clarify a little bit of this. In this particular case, when we talk about suffering, we're talking about suffering at the hands of those who would reject Christ. There's a lot of suffering that happens in life. You might be suffering because you're ill. You might be suffering because there's some tension in your home. You might be suffering because you've lost a job. You might be suffering because you've lost a loved one. You might be suffering because you have lost vigor. That's not exactly the suffering we're speaking to here. Specifically, the suffering that he is talking about is suffering at the hands of those who revile you because you are in Christ. Now, here's the reality for us. That just because that's what he's addressing in those verses doesn't mean it stops there. Because all of the other suffering, if, if you're here and you're like, yeah, well, that's the kind of suffering I'm facing. Can we talk about that? Here we go. So you don't just stand firm in your suffering at the hands of those who revile Christ, but you also stand firm on Christ. And here's the crux of the entire argument. 
This speaks to all people, all suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The foundation of all of your hope in whatever you may be facing rests in this truth, the substitutionary work of Jesus. There is a term, a phrase that we refer to, that we hold dear to, and that's the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Don't wig out. I'm going to explain it. Because there's probably a lot of you have never heard that term before. So let's break it down piece by piece. Penal meaning that because of the sin in our lives and the Old Testament law, the law of God, we are all condemned as sinners. Romans 1, for there is no excuse. There's no excuse. The question is often asked, well, what about those who will never hear the gospel? Romans 1 clearly states that there is no excuse because of the divine nature and the attributes of God seen in creation. A little later in Romans 3, Paul writes this, that because of one man's sin, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here, every person who has ever been born outside of Jesus is born a sinner. And because of the law, we are condemned to death. The penalty, penal, for our sin is death. But then we get substitution. Jesus comes, God in the flesh, and He takes on all the sin of all of His elect for all of time, and He takes it upon Himself, and He submits Himself to God's righteous and just punishment to satisfy the wrath for that sin. See, because of our sin, we all deserve to die. We all deserve to taste the wrath of God. But Christ substituted himself in our place. And he takes what would be the wrath of God meant for you and me, and he bears it upon himself. Why? To atone for our sins. That is, through Jesus' death and through Jesus' resurrection, sin is removed and it is replaced with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Hold your finger there and flip really quick to 2 Corinthians 5.21. That will be to the left. you ever want to know if there's just one verse that really clearly explains the atoning work of God, it's right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's think about this. For our sake, the sake of sinners, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect in all of his ways. And on the cross, he took on the sin of his people. And we know that because Jesus cried out, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've told you many times before, that is a verse that baffled me for years. Because I did not understand how God could turn his back on his son. Until I understood more that he did so because Jesus became sin for us. And God being righteous, being holy, cannot look upon sin. So for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we sinners might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. The doctrine of imputation. Christ, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. On the cross, takes all the sin of all of his people for all of eternity. And here we are, broken, vile, wretched sinners. Christ takes all of our sin, puts it on himself. And in his death, he swaps our sin with his righteousness. God satisfies, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God for sin that was meant for you and me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you're here today and you're a Christian, that is, you have trusted in Jesus, you have confessed your sins, you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You have hope in suffering because Jesus also suffered. The great high priest. And, and not only does it give us hope, but it gives us motivation, right? It gives us motivation because when he was put to death, he didn't stay dead. It gives us hope and motivation because the grave could not hold him. It gives us hope and motivation because, as we see here in verse 18, he was put to death, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Now you notice that's lowercase s. That doesn't mean he became spirit, but he was made alive in the Spirit, meaning he went from death to life. And when Christ saves us, our lives are forever changed. Our sins are forgiven. We're given the Holy Spirit to live within us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us. And we are given security in knowing 
that our eternity is fixed. Our hope is in Jesus. Our eternal home is in heaven. Now notice what else happens. Between his death and his resurrection, verse 19. So this is after he dies, before he's raised, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Upon his death, Jesus goes and he preaches and he proclaims victories to the spirits in prison. Who? Who are the spirits in prison? These are what Genesis 6 and 7 call the sons of God. They're fallen angels who disobeyed God. Look at verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. These were the sons of God who came and they took for themselves the daughters of man and they spread wickedness and wretchedness across the face of God's earth. They rebelled against God. They spread their wickedness. And according to Scripture, they are bound and they are held captive until judgment. Now, in case you're saying, well, this is really obscure. We're talking about suffering. We're talking about making a defense of the gospel. Doing so with gentleness and respect because we're reflecting the nature and the character of God. That is, we're not being jerks, but we're being winsome with the gospel. We're wanting people to come to faith in Jesus. We're not trying to push people away from Jesus. And now we're talking about Jesus suffering in our place for our sins. Right? That he would become the substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And now we're talking about Jesus going and preaching to bound up fallen angels. Why? Why mention this here? It's actually pretty profound. Peter is wanting to assure the people of God this. That even though you may be suffering greatly, Jesus not only saves you from sin, but he also reigns over all things, including Satan and his demons. So, when he tells you back in verse 14... Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is why. Because not only has Jesus suffered and died in our place for our sins, but he has prepared us for not only life, but death. And that there is nothing that can come against us. Right? Romans 8. Neither height, nor depth, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors in him who has loved us. And Peter then kind of likens this to their current suffering. And he, and he connects it to the, the suffering of the days of Noah. So to Noah and his family. And just in case you're thinking that, well, this has nothing to do with us. Hold tight. It does. I promise. See, Noah and his family suffered Greatly because they lived in vile days. They lived in vile days, again, because of what we see in verse 20. That while the ark was being prepared, you had the sons of God spreading wickedness across the face of the earth. And we know that Noah was considered a joke. 
broke, basically, because they had never seen rain, and yet here he is building a giant boat. And yet he trusted God, and he continued to press on, even though he was greatly outnumbered on earth. God saved Noah and his family from judgment. Now, we live in a day where I'd say, especially here in southeast Georgia, you pick 20 people, you go to them, you ask them if they're a Christian, more than likely all of them are going to say yes. But the scripture says that broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. We need to know the word of God to be able to carefully speak the word of God. So that people come to grips with the reality of who it is and what it is to be the people of God. So Jesus goes and he proclaims victory over Satan and his reign. In order to assure the people that are suffering, they are cared for. There is nothing that can come against us. And God saves, God saves his family from judgment. Likewise, for those who trust in Jesus, God saves us from judgment through the work of Jesus. So then, as God's people, we show allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, through, check this, as it's not obscure enough, through the waters of baptism. Allison asked me earlier this week, like, what are you preaching on? I was like, all kind of stuff. This, um, this is why we wouldn't have got out in here before 2 o'clock last week. I mean, we barely made it on time. We might have went over a little bit, but if we'd had to cover all this. So we're talking about suffering and giving a defense for our faith, trusting in the saving work of Jesus, which was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that Jesus goes and he proclaims victory over the fallen angels in prison because of their disobedience. And he compares our suffering and their suffering to Noah and his family who suffered because they were greatly outnumbered. That is, they were walking a thin line proclaiming the gospel. They were taking the narrow way. And now we're going to talk about baptism. And in case you think I'm crazy, let's read verse 20 again. Because they, the fallen angels, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Upon completion of the ark, Noah and his family, along with all of the animals, entered in and they were spared the death that was brought on by the flood. Yet when they came out, they did so to a completely renewed world. Now, they still had sin within themselves, but 
the, the wickedness that was brought on by the sons of God, those fallen angels, had been wiped away. Likewise, baptism symbolizes that you have been brought from death to life. The waters of the flood washed the earth clean. And the bab- baptism that we hold to is a symbol that we have been brought from death to life. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't save. Now, I know you're like, wait a minute. It just says it did. Let's, let's read this again. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to God. Oh, I skipped a whole line. Which corresponds to this now saves you. But listen, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus. So, The baptism itself doesn't save you. It's the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. That is trusting Jesus with your life, surrendering yourselves to him. That's what saves you. We're saved by grace through faith, through the work of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus accomplished what he came to do. That's where we're saved. So then we follow through with the waters of baptism to show that we have been brought from death to life. So it doesn't reveal, it doesn't save us, but it reveals to us that the dirt has been removed. Just as, so follow with me, just as the flood cleansed the earth temporarily, Jesus removes sin permanently through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he gives baptism as a sign that he Jesus has cleansed you of all unrighteousness. So when God looks at you, even though you still fight the nature to sin because you are human, you do not appear to God as a sinner, but as one who is righteous. Just as his son, Jesus, the Holy One. So baptism in the old school language is an outward sign of an inward change. It is a picture that Jesus has washed us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So then we need to ask the question, well, then who is baptized? Again, verse 21. To those who make an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, those who, according to Romans 10, 9, who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead and they are saved. Those who believe and confess Jesus, they believe and they confess in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven and his eternal reign. Those are who are saved and who are then baptized. Jesus in his last command says, go then. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So who's baptized? Those who confess that Jesus is the Christ. So the great difference between being baptized as an infant versus being baptized as an adult is to be undergoing believer's baptism, that we confess Jesus, we believe Jesus has saved us, and we faithfully follow through, showing that we have trusted in Christ through the waters of baptism. Now, let's go all the way back to the beginning. 
all of us will face suffering. Those who faithfully and boldly proclaim Jesus will face suffering of a different kind. But the hope we can all have in suffering rests only in the person and the work of Jesus. Not in your relationships, not in your attitudes, not in your achievements, not in your bank accounts, not in your families, not in your friends, none of that. The only true hope we have is in Jesus. And it's that way because of verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So how do we endure suffering to make a defense with gentleness and respect through Christ and his death? How are we saved through Christ and his death? Why are we baptized to declare Christ and his death and his resurrection? See, when you come to him, repenting of your sin, and believing in his salvation, you then declare that he has saved you through the waters of baptism. So you're not only standing firm in your suffering, but you're standing firm on Christ. Because Christ is all we have and he is all we need. When everything else fails you, when everything falls apart, you still have Christ. He will not fail. He will never leave. He will never forsake. Stand firm on Christ. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. Let him radically change you. And don't be afraid to declare to the world that he has done so.